This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Is there a library, a bookstore around here where I could books on rock and roll? Rock and roll. Story's true. This is a story that needs to be told. These rock and rollers want something to read. Shh. Quiet, please. Hey, folks. Christian Swain here. I'd like to talk a bit about our project and about you. The Rock and Roll Archaeology Project is currently four podcasts. Our main show, we think of it as a Rock and Roll 101, we will eventually do about 30 of these scripted, carefully researched audio documentaries. And we have the Rock and Roll Librarian, where Shelley Sorensen and I have lively fun discussions about books that rock. The discussions continue with Rock Talk, a weekly survey of rock and roll news with my co-host, Peter Ferrioli. And we just rolled out Deeper Digs in Rock, single topic shows, interviews, and field trips. All we want to do now is more of it more often. And that's where you come in. Our shows will always be free. That's our promise to you. If you truly enjoy it, if you can't wait for that next episode, well, won't you please make a modest monthly donation via Patreon. Just click the Patreon link right at the top of our webpage, rockandrollarchaeology.com, and take it from there. Thank you, and keep up the rockin'. Diggers, and welcome to another edition of the Rock and Roll Librarian. With me, as always, is Shelly Sorensen. How you doing, Shelly? I'm doing good. How are you? Wow. I'm doing really good. <laughs> it's been a crazy week. All fantastic for the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. <laughs> Have you got to hear episode 13? I did. Hard I to handle? I did. I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. I believe we're going to continue on with the subject. Yes, folks, we are trying to create a little synergy with some of our shows here. So tonight, uh, I think we got a book that fits into that category. Shelly. Tell us what we got. Well, we have somebody that was very big in soul music. Soul music. Yes, sweet soul music. And sweet his name soul music. is Otis Redding. And I read the book called Otis, the Otis Redding story by Scott Freeman. And it was 
really very interesting. I've always uh, wondered about Otis and his life and loved his music. Actually, I haven't always loved his music. I didn't really get introduced to Otis until I met my um, now husband. Oh. Uh, I met him in the early 80s and I kind of knew more uh, soul music like the Motowny kind of soul music, and yeah, one of the uh, the three legs of the soul triangle, as we call it, uh, which is Atlantic, Motown, and uh, Stax. Yeah, traditionally, most people think of uh, the the soul triangle that way. Yeah. Although, hey, Professor Charles L. Hughes, who will be also interviewed, and we'll talk more about soul music. He says Nashville, Muscle Shoals, and Stax, but for socio political reasons. But uh, yeah, the soul triangle and soul music. Uh, yeah, I picked up on it probably the same time, the early, mid-80s, and, you know, kind of went backwards from there. Uh, mm-hmm. And lots of lots of great songs, great, great tunes that you just, you know, knock you dead. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my husband was a real, true Otis Redding fan. Still oh. is. So oh, yeah. Yeah. That was part of the uh, soundtrack of our, of our early Courtship. love. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Very nice. That's right. So, special place. All right. So, get us going here into the story. Tell us all about Mr. Otis Redding, Mr. Pitiful, Mr., (laughs) you know, uh, like the coolest man ever to walk the face of the earth. That's right. Totally. Um, Well, he was born in Georgia, in Terrell County. Yeah, Macon. Macon, right? And um, he actually, when he was very young, his father was a sharecropper out in the country. And that was still going on. Let's see. Otis was born in 1941. And, you know, this is a big hangover from uh, slavery and uh, sharecropping was a way that kind of kept people in a cycle of poverty. Yeah. So at a certain point. Jim Crow um, laws and all that down there. Yeah. Mm. Otis Redding Sr., who was Otis Redding Jr.'s father, moved his family into Macon, which was the big city in that area. There wasn't really any other city for had a large African-American population. Yeah, it was at the time 45% of the city's population, large and vibrant. Well, it was another um, another uh, tip-off to the northern migration that we've talked about in previous episodes. Right. I, the, the author um, refers to that as the like kind of a mini northern migration. Yeah. There's a lot yeah. of... Uh, Not quite the Mississippi Delta, but uh, yeah. Right. A lot of the poor uh, rural black families moved to Macon. And, you know, the, the races were still real separate and the blacks still were kept under the heel of the whites, but... Um, Oh yeah, they they did have some something of a political power base. I mean, they they you know people were voted into office, you know, that were African American. But you know, it was uh, life like that. They first settled in a federal housing project, and then eventually moved to uh, a house in a neighborhood called Bellevue, where he met most of his uh, friends that he you know remained friends with or played music with for the rest of their of his life. He was a oh he was a Macon guy through and through. Yeah, he was a, you know, an athlete. He was popular and tall, but you know, he ran with his friends. I mean, they lived in a an area that you had to kind of hang out with your friends and make sure everybody was kept safe and, you know, kind of running around like boys do and they played in the woods and that kind of stuff. So, you know, but eventually he 
heard, you know, Little Richard and James Brown, who both rose yeah. to stardom from George Macon. Boys and yeah, from yep. Macon. Yeah. And as soon as he heard Little Richard, Otis knew he was going to be a singer. He wore out a copy of Long Tall Sally and told all of his friends, one of these days, I'm going to be just like Little Richard. So he really had a, a plan for his life. And I think this, uh, the story of his musical career is really like many of the stories I've read about people that become musicians is really a story of people knowing their passion and persevering, you know, through it all and having, you know, faith in themselves like that they have something to give musically. And well, they just keep going after it. You got to have inspiration from somewhere That's and right. getting it from little Richard ain't too bad. Not too bad. So let's play a little of one of those first influential moments that make Otis who he is. And that's little Richard, long, tall Sally. Everybody knows that song. You know, of course, we we played that in uh, in episode three, uh, yeah. where we talk about Little Richard and just wow, what a guy! Uh, one of my favorites, and probably my favorite of the early rock and roll stars, um, Little Richard, hands down. Awesome. Well, you know, that was the first song that Otis sang at the talent mm. night at the Hillview Springs Social Club. The which Hillview was a, Springs Social Club. Yeah, it was a funky place in the woods uh, near a lake where the black families and adults could go to have fun. They'd have daytime family excursions and barbecues. And then at night they had a bar with a with soul music on the radio and a woman named Gladys Williams who presided over the whole thing. She was a cursing, uh, original <laughs> blues diva, sultry and glamorous. Right. And she played the piano and, you know, just ruled the roost over all the young musicians she took under her wing and had a talent contest with a $5 prize. Uh, but you had to have your shit together or she would pull you right off the stage, sometimes not very kindly. <laughs> kind of like a mini uh, Apollo theater, huh? I guess so. Yeah. Or, you know... Uh, what you call it, yeah. uh, America's Got Talent or something like that. <laughs> oh, but, I think uh, that was common back in that day. The problem day. with Otis is he had real, you know, raw talent and passion, but he didn't know how to sing with other musicians. So, oh, yeah, yeah. He's kind of known that his timing wasn't exactly... Uh, Spot on. Yeah. He kind of made up his own. He, timing was <laughs> off. He didn't know when to come in. He didn't know when to go out. He didn't know how to let the other musicians have solos, he, you know, behind or ahead of the rhythm. So she kicked him off. And, uh, well, he was embarrassed, but he wasn't discouraged. And he took some tips from Gladys and went home and learned another Little Richard song. I believe it was Heebie Jeebies. Oh. And went back and tore the place up and got the prize. And then he kept he kept going back every time they had a talent contest and won the prize over and over again. Yeah, so, that's what. I, yeah, I remember that and reading uh, about him. Yeah, so you know, eventually he had to um, 
kind of they kicked him you know out <laughs> and said no more you, yeah, you can't win the five dollar prize anymore it's time to go and be a big star be a professional man right but you know that was a macon was a really big kind of crossroads for a breeding ground yeah, for a lot yeah. of the music oh, yeah. uh, started at the turn of the century that people came to macon to yeah. play yeah. music and then the next talent show kind of thing he was on was a radio station sponsored talent contest called the Teenage Party at the Douglas Theater. And um, that's where he met uh, somebody named Johnny Jenkins, who became oh, Johnny very important Jenkins and the Pine Toppers. That's right. right and so right. he got in with Johnny and Johnny helped him with his timing. He helped him sound good. He said, you know, let me play guitar behind you and I can help you with your timing and, you know, cue you when to come in or cover up for you when you do the wrong thing. And so that's uh, when he got up on stage and realized he could be a star someday because the thrill of, um, you know, standing on stage and having people clap and scream for him. Hey, let's uh, stop you just for a second. Yeah. Um, just for our listeners, um, I think you've just recently started to experience that yourself, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Christian. you've been up on stage a few times. I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> 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 yeah, it is thrilling, people. It's yeah. thrilling. Yeah, Everybody with my music it, school, right? I, yeah. I got into a, a band and played at the Boom Boom Room. Uh, yes, you so did. So that was fun. Yeah. 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 Did a couple times. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I know. It's a it's a total, I mean, I can see why he liked it. Oh, God. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, hey, I, I'm addicted to it. So, yeah. Uh, I've been my whole life. <laughs> That's right. All right. Johnny Jenkins. I want to talk a little bit about Johnny Jenkins because, you know, we kind of uh, gloss over him a little bit in in, uh, in episode 13. And, uh, you know, Johnny uh, is kind of influential to a couple of people, obviously, Otis Redding, as we just talked about, but also Jimi Hendrix. You know, he was a flashy kind of guitar player that uh, that Jimmy kind of copied and, and I believe had seen a couple of times. Yeah, he did. He came to see the Johnny Jenkins play um, around Macon and you know Johnny Jenkins was a he was flamboyant he was handsome he was the best guitar player in Macon he had a bandana wrapped around his long hair he would dance and play real fast and you know take the guitar behind his head and play with his teeth and yeah, stuff like I, that. I mean, you're, you're giving Jimi Hendrix his act here, but yes, that's, that's, right. that's some of the places where the, the inspiration came from was yeah. Johnny Jenkins. Yep. And yeah. real outspoken. I mean, one, one interesting thing about this book is, you know, that the author was able to interview Johnny Jenkins and so many other people that Otis knew, his friends and, you know, people he played with back in the old days. So yeah. it really gives it a lot of flavor. It's really great. So, um, yeah, Johnny was playing with uh, a drummer with the great star name of Pat Tea Cake, which Pat Tea Cake, Pat Patty Pat Cake. Cake, no Pat Tea Cake. Pat, <laughs> yeah, I get it. <laughs> yeah, Pat Tea Cake and his Mighty Panthers. Ooh, man! And uh, they Ow. were the sometimes the house band at the teenage party. So Otis started sitting in with them, and then when he came back to the you know teenage party show he would have an, an advantage because he'd been already playing with this band and getting, you know, getting his chops together. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, he, uh, well, as you called the episode 13 hard to handle, uh -huh. that explains Otis that describes Otis when he was 17, you know, sneaking out of the house. His dad was a pastor, so he was, uh, you know, real religious and Otis wasn't kind of behaving the way that, uh, a man of the cloth would want his, uh, son to behave. So really? Yeah. Well, kind of like Little Richard? What? Yeah. Oh, what's wrong with that? Not quite. Oh, little Not Richard, quite I think. Like little uh, Richard. <laughs> he, was, he was a preacher a couple of times. He had God in him. 
That's right. Wow. That's right. I know. I know. Rock and roll, all the devil, all that stuff. Yeah. Well, the next the next important person that he meets though is Phil Walden, who became oh, his yes. uh, his manager. manager. Yeah. yeah. And got him got the band. You know, Johnny Jenkins and Otis were in the band the next called the Pine Toppers. Yeah. And um, so Phil Walden came to see them and loved Otis's singing and uh, promised to get them on the frat circuit. I didn't know there was something like that. That was all oh, yeah. new to me. Yeah, yeah. kind of like a, I, you know, you remember the movie Animal House? Yes. And the, the boys run into, oh, what's the name of that band? Otis Day and the Nights. <laughs> oh, yeah, you I know? remember I mean, that. come on, Otis. Uh, yeah, they're, yeah. they're totally making a play uh, from the movie. But anyway, yeah. Yeah, they would drive around all in the South, like Georgia, um, yeah, yeah, the University of Georgia yeah. and Georgia mm-hmm. Tech. Yeah, and, yeah. And the white fraternity boys loved the. Um, you know, loved all the black bands coming through and oh, would yeah. fraternize with them and go out to eat and, you know, get in trouble. I mean, they would come by the police and the police would want to know what the white kids and the black kids were doing together. Yeah, let's make sure everybody understands. Yeah, Phil Walden was, uh, you know, a well-to-do white kid that fell in love with black music and, uh, you know, Otis Redding in particular. You know, there's this great story, I'm sure it's in the book, about how Otis helped Phil continue his education. Is that mentioned in there? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Let's tell the listeners all about that. Well, Phil was uh, trying to go to college while they were, you know, while he was managing the band and uh, his dad pulled the funding away from him. Because he was hanging out with the African-Americans yeah. in uh, there. Yeah. And yeah, uh, a little and racism, he I says, think. oh, well, uh, I, I can't, you know, finish up my college career. I can't go this semester. Because I ran out of money, my dad won't pay for it. And Otis said, oh, just hold on there a minute and ran off and took up a collection and came back with a paper bag full of bills and coins. Yeah, and from, from the neighborhood. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, amazing story. So, yeah, Phil uh, took them all, you know, traveled around with them in the South. And, yeah. you know, it was really dangerous at that time for the <laughs> black kids to be driving oh, around yeah. on the with road. With the white kids, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. the civil rights movement, you know, the Freedom Riders were yeah. starting to come down there. Yeah, and, and we know what happened with uh, some of those folks. Right, it was a real highly charged time. Yeah. So anyway, but... Yeah, white people, you know. Yeah, <laughs> He finally gets to a point where he records his first single, which is called Shout Bamalama. Oh, yeah, that's right. And that was written by Otis. Mm -hmm. Um, Got crazy lyrics and a really upbeat. (laughs) It's very Little Richard um, derivative, I would say. But, you know, it's really fun. And that was done with the Pine Toppers, if I remember right. Yes, with the Pine Toppers. But you won't find it under their name, I don't think. Uh, Well, you might find it on YouTube under the Pine Toppers. Well, let's play a little of uh, Otis Redding and the Pine Toppers with Johnny Jenkins. Shout Bama-Lama.
wow, that's a crazy song. At the real, like, fast lyrics and everything. And well, the part. It's not Booker T and the MGs. No, no, uh, not at all. It's, uh, you know, uh, you can, yeah, it's Otis. You can feel the Otis. Uh, but, feel uh, the Otis. Yeah, maybe not Johnny yeah. Jenkins and the Pine Toppers. And sir. that part about the sounds of the loud, the party at the beginning, that yeah. was Otis's idea. Ah. But I got to tell you, Johnny Jenkins was not available that day, so he doesn't oh, play on this so track. It wasn't Johnny Jenkins and the Pine Toppers, it's just <laughs> the Pine Toppers. That's right. Oh, and, my bad. Uh, okay. Yeah, and then wow. they were right. at a public television studio. It was recorded in 1962. Yeah, it kind of has that live feel. And mm-hmm. it was put out on a on a label called Confederate Records. Oh, shit. Which uh, apparently <laughs> didn't go over very well with the uh, local black R&B stations. So they, the record uh, label owner, Bobby Smith, he he went back to the studio and, and printed up some new labels and called it Orbit Records and slapped them on there and sold the rest of the... Uh, Good choice. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, he didn't, you know, that didn't really catch fire more than just kind of around local, uh, Yeah, a local, yeah. Uh, regional uh, type of right. uh, hit. All right. Yeah. But enough maybe to get noticed. Right, right. But the Pine Toppers were very popular, you know, in Macon. Oh, and yeah. They were a fixture in the clubs. And um, actually, Otis started singing a few more kinds of songs he, he loved sam cook as well as uh oh, as well as will richard Cooke? and james brown sam uh, cook was one of yeah. his favorites and you know he always had a sam cook song Sucky on all boys. of his albums oh every it, single album i think got a so sam at cook least in. the first few he always included a uh, sam cook cover very cool yeah well maybe we should play a sam cook song that sounds good what do you think I think it's a good idea. Which song would I you love, like to play? I love uh, Nothing Can Change This Love. I'll tell you what. Let's play a little of Sam Cooke singing it and then morph into a little of Otis Redding singing it. That would be really interesting. All right. Compare and contrast. Here we go. If I go a million miles And every day Cause honey Nothing Nothing Can ever change This love I have Okay, Shelly, which one you like better, Otis or Sam? <laughs> well, I don't know. I'm a. That's hard. That's a tough choice, huh? Yeah, that's oh, a. Yeah. That's a. I love Sam Cooke. Oh, oh my yeah. goodness, who, who wouldn't? Silky voice, uh, man. Uh, They're another, very different. Another one, uh, you know, gone before his time. Yeah, I mean, Sam is all smooth and, yeah. and debonair, and yeah. Otis, Otis is all is raw, raw and sexual. Yeah. You know, Ooh. gotta have. Man. Too bad you can't have both of those in one man. Uh, maybe maybe you, you could have them both at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get back to the story. All right. Oh, well, man, you know, I got you to stop there and think about that. Yeah, I know. I'm thinking, hmm. <laughs> so we're on to stacks now. 
We're going to go to Stax. Otis is going to go to Stax with Johnny Jenkins. Johnny was uh, thought to, that he would be good fit for Stax yeah, because the pine uh, mm-hmm. Booker T and the MGs had just uh, had big success with Green Onions, which was their you know in full instrumental. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the Pine Toppers did a lot of instrumental songs. Yeah, and Johnny, yeah. that was one of Johnny Jenkins' kind of specialties. specialties right, yeah. Right. So he had a, an instrumental out called Love Twist, and they thought maybe that uh, Johnny would do good at Stax. And so Otis drove Johnny to Memphis. Um, and actually, I know that there's a lot of stories about this, how Otis got to Stax. And this, this author is basically saying, you know, that Otis and Johnny were in a band together and Johnny had a come on, you know, to go to Stax and Otis wanted to go along with him. Oh, the driver story. Yeah. Right. And so Otis wasn't really Johnny's driver, you know, like paid uh, driver. Uh, he just just driving the car. Right. And then he, you know, since he didn't have anything else to do. And I think, you know, obviously he wanted to go and hang around and hey, see maybe if he could. Don't let the facts get in the way of a good story. Yeah. <laughs> Soak up some, you know some uh, goodies, you know, at Stacks yeah. and get known yeah. and get seen and mm-hmm. maybe be able to sing for somebody. You got to, you know, work every angle, right? Yeah. But at, nobody else at Stacks knew who Otis was. And and the song... Yeah, but that, didn't Phil Walden work uh, Jim Stewart and Estelle uh, to kind of, yeah, maybe you should look at this guy. Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, the, the you know everybody who was interviewed had a little bit of a different oh, memory of yeah. it. One yeah, one of those Rashomon moments. Yeah, huh? so like there's a guy named Joel Gulkin, who is the Southern rep for Atlantic Records that was there. And he... He was pretending, apparently, like he thought Otis was a really bad singer, but he he was really wheeling and dealing in the background to steal Otis away. He had he heard Otis sing, I guess, on that uh, when he went in to sing the song that he went in to sing, which is "These Arms of Mine," yeah. which he had written. Yeah, and they didn't like Johnny Jenkins wasn't uh, gelling with the MGs, so they kind of like they had another hour of studio yep. time left, and. Uh, Johnny says that he insisted that they give Otis some time to play. But, <laughs> yeah, he did. Eh, I don't know. I don't buy that. <laughs> no way. But Otis just, uh, you know, taught the song to the MGs. He he had uh, Steve Cropper sit down at the piano, which was kind of funny because Steve Cropper was a, a guitar, guitar player, player right. and asked him to play some triplets on the piano. And he sang, he started launching into these arms of mine. And most people report that they were astounded by his delivery and his passion while he was singing that song mm-hmm. and uh, after afterwards though Duck Dunn says he didn't see Otis right away as a stardom kind of contender but then again he also said that he was in a hurry to get out of there because he had another gig at a club so maybe he wasn't paying attention well Jim Stewart yeah. did and uh, you know he signed him to yeah uh, everybody to a who was solo important. deal right so yeah he got signed to Stacks. Uh, the funny, th- not so funny for Bobby Smith, but apparently he was—he already had a contract with Bobby Smith. You know, they bought him out, and so now he's being signed at uh, Stacks. And Phil Walden, his his full-time yeah, Bobby manager, Smith at Confederate Records. Right. Yeah, that, that never was going to go anywhere. <laughs> no. So um, yeah, you know that the song was released, "These Arms of Mine," and it didn't really do anything much on the charts. I think it got to number twenty on the R&B charts. So let's listen to some of it. It's a great song. These Arms of Mine? Yes. Oh, we'll play it again. These 
Big old Otis that we know. That's nice, sweet Otis. But hey, I can hear the stardom in that voice. Can yeah. You? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. The third session he did. Well, one of the things that I, I thought was real interesting about Otis was that he was influential in the development of the Stax horn section. Um, he, oh, the Memphis horns? Yeah, the not the section. Oh, you mean, but, oh you're talking about that call and response that yeah, they would the do. Sound. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the sound. So he would have an idea in his head when he wrote a song and he would come into the studio and hum the parts to the um, horn players because he couldn't, he didn't write music. He wasn't musically trained. Mm-hmm. So he didn't read and write music, but he would just, you know, sing, the, sing the parts yep. to the musicians and they would you know, they would just learn them from his his vocal rendition. Yeah, they would interpret it and then, uh, you know, add their own flair to it and get to that point, which is, uh, uh, you know, that's a stacked trademark. Right, right. And one um, one other example of that is the next single that he recorded at Stax was called um, Pain in My Heart. Oh, And yeah. uh, it was the first recording that he did that had a fully realized arrangement with intricate and well thought out horn lines. So he, you know, that's these horn lines were basically horn lines that he wrote or thought of himself and, you know, taught to the horn section. And so, and also he sounds very confident in the recording. Though what I would like to do is play the version when he had his first really big show in public, which was the Stax Review at the Apollo Theater in Harlem. Oh, yeah. In 1963. Mm -hmm. Um, You can really hear, you know, the audience, especially the ladies reacting to him and, you know, that he starts out a little bit. He starts out a little, yeah, a little tentative and then really gets into it and gets real hyped up by the audience and real, you know, really (laughs) takes that energy and uses it. All right. All right. So let's play live at the Apollo Theater in New York City. Pain in my heart. Pain in my heart, treating me cold. Where can my baby be? Oh, no one knows Pain in my heart Just won't let me be Where can my baby be? Lord, where can she be? And now my day Has begun to get up And I won't do this All right, now 
now we're starting to hear Otis fully realized. Yeah. That sounds good. <laughs> he's starting to use his, uh, you know, his voice like an instrument. He's he's very... Expressive. Per- yes, and percussive. Oh, yeah. oh, yes. You know, which is uh, something that's, uh, you know, like the lyrics aren't the most important thing. He's using his voice to kind of blend in with the rest of the band. Oh, and, it's pure emotionalism. Yeah, using it as a, yeah, a, per- a percussion instrument. And that song um, on the original recording on the album that next is the album, the first album that he has that came out, which was also called Pain in My Heart in 1963. That one, uh, that song went to number 61 on the Billboard pop charts, which was his highest position on the pop charts. So there was pop charts and there was R&B charts. Yeah, yeah. And that year there was no R&B charts or else he would have hit real high on it because that that song oh, was very that popular they switched right yeah 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 so um yeah that was a another song on that album which was called pain in my heart was his the song security which is a was different than pain in my heart it shows a change in direction it's real rocking it's it's built on the hooks and the recurring horn lines and and Cropper's guitar licks. Yeah, so there's Booker T and the MGs. Which, yes. Hey, let's talk a little bit about Booker T and the MGs here, just for the audience that may not have heard uh, episode 13. So, you know, obviously, uh, you know, uh, Booker T Jones uh, on uh, on keys there. You got Steve Cropper on guitar. You uh, you have Alan Jackson Jr. on drums. And, uh, and I think, did you say this is 63? Yes. So it's Louis um, Steinberg, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, not Donald Duck done yet. Not yet. Not okay. Yet. All right. So they're the original um, Booker T and the MGs. Uh, right. And then, but, of course, but, yeah. Duck, oh, is ha- Duck is hanging around the well, studio. Well, yeah, yeah, because Cropper and Duck were childhood yeah. friends, uh, you know, high school and all that. So, yeah, definitely. Uh, and then, you know, on top, you, you have the Memphis Horns there. And, uh, and of course, you know, the, 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 the primaries of the Memphis Horns are... You know, Wayne Jackson, uh, trumpet, and uh, Andrew Love, tenor sax. And then I think Floyd Newman may have been there, baritone sax at that time. And then, yeah, you know, it's a, then it's a, you know, a changing cast of characters uh, in there. So, but yeah, I, I mean, that they're they're pretty much on, on Aerie Stack's song uh, from then on out. Yeah. And the, the band really is gelling around that point, really, you know, tight and playing the thing the great thing about Steve Cropper's playing is that he's not a like a real um kind of incendiary lead guitar player but he's just perfect you know he just he finds the the holes yeah finds the holes and fills them nicely with uh with some great rhythm that's right it's very tasteful so hey let's play a little security and play it Steve that one you know i didn't i didn't remember that was called security but when i uh, listened to it 
I recognized yeah. oh, it went, right away. I know away. that song, right? Yeah, right. yeah. Yeah, it's got some yeah. nice Alan Jackson Jr. fills going on there, you yeah. know. And you're right, you know, Steve Cropper's just filling in uh, in those nice little holes. Yeah, it's yeah. that's a good one. And this uh, at this point, Otis finally starts to make a little money. You know, they're still going out on the road. Oh, they're still working, touring, working like the man, hardest yeah, man, in, hardest working man in show there. business after James Brown, of course. <laughs> but yes. So he he actually bought a house and a car, and he'd already met his uh, sure. his wife uh, Zelma. Zelma, yeah, and had a baby before they even got married. Mm-hmm. But you know, so they're starting to, and he he was able to buy his daddy a new Ford, even though his yeah. daddy always said he'd never amount to anything. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, many of our dads got it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Not, not me. Just, just saying. Nah, my dad had it right. Well, my dad thought I was going to be more than I, you know, like the president of the United States or something like that. But oh, well, that's you got some not work a to job do. I want. You know, I hear the the job may be open. Yeah, here soon. <laughs> you think I could do a better job than uh, the guy that's in there right now? Do you right really now? want me to answer that? <laughs> no, no, no. All right, let's get back I don't to want Otis. It. All right, so um, yeah, the next song that, that he recorded that uh, I think is really very noteworthy is... Um, His namesake? Yes, Mr. Pitiful. <laughs> and this was, uh, you know, something because a lot of the songs he had put out or was singing on stage were, you know, those kind of heartbreaking... Oh, my baby done left me. Oh, yeah. And, he, you know, Otis got a lot of those. That's right. And so there was a DJ, a local DJ, who started calling him Mr. Pitiful. <laughs> and um, Steve <laughs> yeah, Cropper right. came up that's with right. this idea this. Yeah. for the line. They call me Mr. Pitiful. And he sang the opening line to Otis, uh, you know, joking around, but had picked him up and they were driving to the to the studio. And in the 10 minute drive, they had written the song together and came up with the horn riff in the bridge and um wait a minute they wrote this song in like 10 minutes that's what uh that's what that's mr what freeman Cropper says, says or, yeah oh, freeman well oh, i mean okay. that's what the author says yeah <laughs> so they uh they got into the studio and taught the horn parts to the horn players and recorded it in two or three takes and this is the beginning of otis and steve really beginning to write develop a, a songwriting close song yeah writing i mean relationship. otis right. would come in with little snippets and little mm-hmm. ideas mm-hmm. and sit down with steve Cropper and they would, you know, work it up and and sew it together and make something wonderful. That was yeah, kind kids. of the final element in the equation of the Otis Redding story. Yeah, I, I mean, if you want to know how to put this together, how to put it together, and how to how to create a, a songwriting craft, you know, the muse comes in a lot of different ways. And uh, you know, Otis wasn't musically educated. Uh, Cropper um, was pretty well, but again, I mean, these guys just made magic through determination, through desire, Mm -hmm. uh, through willingness to work hard, you know, uh, persistence. Those are the things that really, really make, you know, great collaboration. And boy, did they ever. So let's play a little of this is one of my favorite Otis Redding songs, Mr. Pitiful. Just like you now. 
know, I, I've been waiting to kind of put all of our shows together in a package. And, you know, episode 13 gave me the, the perfect opportunity to do that. And, you know, hard to handle. We've got the history of uh, Southern Soul. Otis Redding is really our star. You know, I'm a big, big fan of Otis. You know, we've got, you know, as we're talking about here, rock and roll librarian doing Otis, the Otis Redding story. I've got an interview with Professor Charles L. Hughes, who wrote the book Country Soul coming up, uh, which talks about the topic in depth from a socio-political standpoint. And we've got a deeper digs in rock with Bill Graham. And while Bill doesn't have a lot to do with Southern Soul, he does show up in uh, in this time frame. And Bill Graham called uh, Otis Redding the greatest talent he ever saw. That's period, right. Period, bar yeah. none. He came and sought him out. He came to Yeah, he uh, flew to Macon. Yeah, yeah. Or, or Memphis. You're right. Yeah. You're right to, to kind of convince him to come and uh, and play the film more. So, you know, it, it's really nice that, that this guy is the one that's putting all the shows together in the thought that I always had that uh, these things would, in conjunction, create, you know, real rock and roll archaeology from several points of view. So I'm glad we're, we're, we're doing this. Yeah, all right. Yeah. Get, get us back into the story here. So after Mr. Pitiful comes out. Yeah, yeah and that song, by the way, I mean, you, know, you listen to that song, you know, it, 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 it's just it's just reality. It's just who he was at that moment, how he was feeling, uh, the band feeling the same way. Yeah, you can totally feel it and hear it there. Yeah, definitely. That song did very well on the on the pop chart. Yeah. Well, not very, very uh, well. No, but no it wasn't, yeah, didn't hit him big, but it got kept him going. I mean, yep. he was always kind of in that, you know, top 30, top 40 kind of position but right. never made it big at this point yeah i know it, it's uh yeah it's a sad story yeah he didn't hadn't had this real crossover hit yet crossover meaning you know yeah, to white audiences to the white audience, yeah the pop and, church um, the the one that finally did it was a song called i've been loving you too long which was an <laughs> instant hit yeah. yeah the the horns the way they you know kind of ascend uh upwards and you know, other people have covered this song. I think even oh, I think Aretha Franklin has, but nobody does it quite like him. You no. know, he has a real personal kind of connection to it. And he, you know, the horns are very dramatic. The key changes. It's a very, you know, it's kind of a complex song and it's very, you know, almost it's, it's very dramatic. And, um, it was, uh, you know, one of the great ballads of that time period. Well, I'll tell you what, here, instead of, you know, opening with the song, let's let's get deep into it and we'll play a little bit towards the end of where Otis really starts to take this thing into the stratosphere. So, I've been loving you too long. Yeah, that one did real well on the um, pop charts. And that <laughs> yeah. was his first, like I said, his first true uh, crossover hit. 
Oh, that's yeah. that's Otis, you know, doing his thing and climbing, uh, you know, there at the end. He's working that's it. Just, He's uh, milking yeah. it. How yeah. Can, how can you not feel? If you can't feel something at the end of that song, you are dead inside. <laughs> yeah. I hope that's not true of any of our listeners. Oh, no. The diggers? Not our of course listeners. Not. Yeah. No. They, they've all stopped this, gone listen to the whole song. Now they've come back to listen to the that's rest of the right. show. That's <laughs> right. So, yeah, that so he's really making it finally now. He has another, you know, he did two albums in one year. The next one, that one was from the great Otis Redding Sings Soul Ballads. And then the next one that came out was Otis Blue. Yeah, Otis Blue, yeah. Yeah, and that one had a gazillion good songs on it. It was, the whole album was recorded in 24 hours. Can you believe that? They had to. They oh, had I don't to, think I knew that. Really, they had to record the album in between Otis's. Oh um, yes, touring. his touring schedule. Yeah, yeah, Who, and everybody man, else's. Yes, you know, gigging his schedule and stuff. But off. So they um they basically had 24 hours to actually do you know the recording, and they had respect on there. Oh, that little song. Yeah, a change is gonna come. Uh, satisfaction came off of there. And you don't miss your water till your well runs dry. So that respect was kind of the big one from that album. Well, the reimagined version by Aretha Franklin was, I mean, that's world renowned now. That's right. That is the definitive version. They're they're almost like two different songs. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's a rework that uh, Aretha does uh, again with the Swampers now down in Muscle Shoals. Oh, yeah. 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 Now, as far as um, satisfaction goes, it was kind of interesting because they it didn't come into the studio knowing all the songs they were going to record. While Otis was uh, taking a break, Steve Cropper went into the record store that was connected to uh, the Stack Studio and um, heard the Rolling oh, he Stones. He started as uh, the the cleanup boy. Yeah. Oh, where Steve Cropper did. Yeah. Oh, that that wasn't in the book. That's an interesting fact. So he heard the Rolling Stones on the you know on the speakers singing satisfaction. And he wrote down the lyrics and, well, he brought it into the studio and played it for Otis and Otis wrote down the lyrics and he actually changed some of them. (laughs) <laughs> and it was kind of ironic. You know, he, he was like singing the song and basically at some point he just threw the lyrics down and just started riffing off of yeah. you know whatever he yeah. could think of. But um, it was kind of funny because they had just recorded That's How Strong My Love Is, which was one that was popularized by Otis Redding on Out of Our Heads, on their album Out of Our Heads. And on the album Out of Our Heads, it was Satisfaction. Yes, the Stones had just recorded that song. So that's how strong my love in and satisfaction were on the same record of the same Rolling Stones record. And then Otis decided to sing satisfaction on his record. So it's kind of like taking the English and making it, you know, turning it into a soul song instead of the other way where the English had been taking soul and blues, you know, and doing their English thing to it. So it's yeah. kind of like a flipped that on its head. Well, now you force me. I'm going to have to play Satisfaction for <laughs> Sorry. everybody. And you know what? <laughs> I'm going to play the Whiskey A Go-Go version. Oh. Uh, in fact, I'm going to play, I think, Night 2 take two which is my favorite version of this uh, of this song of otis doing it and it is folks it is out of this world so get ready here is otis redding doing i can get no satisfaction oh, no. 
So you know the story is is that on the original guitar lines that Keith Richard came up with that they were meant to be horn lines. Oh no, I did not know that. Well, there you have it, right there. Them's the horn lines. No, they're good horn lines too. They work for horns, don't they? They sure do. All right. <laughs> oh, I love that version. Yeah, that's that's pretty fiery. That's awesome. Let's see. Well, we got uh, the next song coming up is one that uh, Otis and... Oh, you're just going to throw me into another song. I am. I'm not even done with Satisfaction, man. I'm still letting that wash over me. Well, that's too bad. We got we to gotta move on here. <laughs> we got a lot of songs to cover and a lot of Otis to, to discuss and well, to love. Well, there is always a lot of Otis. A lot of Otis to love. He was a big guy. Yeah. Do you know that he couldn't he couldn't really dance? He never got the dancing thing down. Yeah, his movement, I, yeah, I wouldn't call it exactly, you know, dancing, but boy, the big man could move. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's totally into, he's moving his body to the music, but in, you know, a lot of like the pair that he was kind of going up against when they would go on these uh, reviews, you know, and they would all uh, play... Um, um, you know, after each other were Sam and Dave. Oh, yeah. And they were the best dancers yeah. in the world. And so that, but they could because one of them would sing the, his line, yeah, the, the other, other one, one could dance. dance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was yeah. watching them and I was thinking, well, that's not fair. You know, <laughs> it's different to have to dance and sing at the same time. But, you know, Otis, like I well, said, I don't he, know. Talk to Prince. Yeah, right. Well, <laughs> or talk some, to James Brown. Some people can do it, that's yeah. for sure. Yeah. Yeah, he got Michael that. Michael Jackson. Uh, <laughs> we'll just keep going. <laughs> yeah, they they were just so anyway, Steve and he were, you know, still writing songs right and left and, you know, going back and forth and getting a, a song together. And then Al Jackson and Otis had this kind of rhythmic uh, relationship. Like I was saying, Otis sang, you know, really rhythmically and they'd lock in together. And that's where Otis got his got to, got to, got to. Oh. You know, he was he was doing a drum. You feel the snare, man. That's right. Mm-hmm. So they, um, all the, the previous albums have been recorded live with everybody in the room at the same time because they didn't have the uh, equipment to do overdubbing. Yeah. But everybody comments on Otis's singing style in the studio because he acted like he was always performing before a live audience. I mean, he never sang something half-hearted. It was all, you know... A room full of people. Yeah, right. just like the like the screaming people were in front of him, and he had a real forceful personality. He was, you know, always trying to keep everybody upbeat and laughing and excited, but not overbearing in the studio. So the the next song that I think really really shows his rhythmic kind of singing style is uh, "I Can't Turn You Loose." Which I love. I like the hip shake and mama part of that one. <laughs> and um, they um, wrote the finished writing the song on the studio floor, and Duck Dunn heard them and began playing a variation of the bass line from the four tops. I can't help myself, sugar pie honey bunch. Oh, Remember yeah. that song, uh-huh. sugar pie. Honey bunch. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, and I can't remember whose quote this was, but I love it. Otis's voice rode the rhythm section like a man at the wheel. I thought that was a really good uh, description of how he commands the the musicians and just kind of rides over them with his with his voice. So I uh, can't do no better. So let's play a little 
of I Can't Turn You Loose. Sugar pie, honey pie is right there. You know, and, and of course, I, I think of the Blues Brothers. Uh, you know, they always open the show with uh, with that. Good times, man. Just, uh, you can't beat that stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's a good one. It's a good one. But believe it or not, even after that one. He still couldn't make it. He still, he yeah, he's still, still not was big not on the charts, crossing right. over. Yeah. And um, he was, you know, really established as an R&B star, but he not like the Motown artists who are, you know, having number one pop hits in the white market. So they still needed to get him a bigger song or one that would really appeal, you know, across cultures, let's say. So um, they were still, you know, working on that. I have an interesting story about the the Beatles who were fans of Stax and were toying around with the idea of recording Rubber Soul in Memphis. Did you know that? No. <laughs> they, you know, kind of put out some feelers about it, but I guess they quickly realized that the Beatles in 1966 couldn't go to Memphis and hang out and live there for a while and record because they would be mobbed at that time. So, Oh, yeah. I can't imagine that. Yeah. So they recorded, they put, apparently Drive My Car was an homage to Stax. That song, Drive My Baby, You Can Drive My Car, yeah. that was on mm-hmm. Rubber Soul. Yep, yep, yep. And uh, the author. Baby, you can drive my car. Boom, 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 boom. Yes, I'm going to be a star. Boom, boom, boom. Okay, boom, okay, boom. okay. All righty, that's enough of that. The Shelley and Christian show. <laughs> I think this is the Shelley and Christian yes. show. Yes, sure. so um, it is, it is. So, so one of the ways, anyway, to get Otis before bigger, you know, wider audience was to get him in at the Whiskey A Go Go in Los Angeles. So he got booked for three nights at the Whiskey A Go Go, and um, it was kind of a gamble because if he crashed and burned, that could. <sighs> kind of ruin his career, make it not possible for him to continue with that holy grail. Well, he, he kind of pushed everybody uh, himself, you know, to uh, to Phil Walden, to Wexler, to Stuart and Jim that, you know, hey, get him out in front of uh, these varied audiences and, you know, this new music and uh, and let him do his thing and uh, this the, these new crossovers and, and let him do his thing. And uh, he uh, he would win him over. And sure enough, I mean, you, you know, Starts, I think, in London, gets to the Whiskey Go-Go, and of course ends in Monterey, where he becomes a superstar. Yes, that's right. When he got to the Whiskey, um, you know, they, actually the kids, the people in the crowd were kind of lukewarm at first, you know, because they didn't really know who he was. But he pretended like that, basically that wasn't happening. And the guy, you can hear, um, you know, the person who's um, introducing him is, you know, trying to whip the crowd up and they're just kind of like, um, yeah, okay, let him let him come on. So he just got their attention right away. I mean, as soon as he came out, he the 
crowd was screaming out his name and there were a lot of Hollywood elite in the audience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, in the in the Robbie Robertson book that I read and we did um, an episode on, he tells the story of going to the whiskey with Bob Dylan and they brought Bob Dylan's new song, Just Like a Woman. I think I mentioned it in that podcast too and suggested that Otis record it. And Otis, you know, even this author says Otis tried, but he said, there's just too many words in that song and he couldn't wrap his tongue around them. So he decided not to record Bob Dylan's song. But um, Phil Spector was there, too, in the audience at the Whiskey A Go-Go. Well, it's three nights. It's Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, April 66. And uh, yeah, a lot of people came down to check him out. Yeah, he was surprised because Phil Spector invited them back to his mansion and knew every single song, you know, sat down at the piano and played. Uh, all, all of, of Otis's, Otis's uh, repertoire and yeah. and uh, knew all the changes and everything. He, and Otis was really wow, surprised. That's, yeah, that's that's big time. Yeah, that's kind of funny, you know. That especially all these... at that moment, I, you know, a lot of people make fun of uh, of Phil Spector and uh, and all that. But you know, at this time, you know, the mid '60s, that that guy is a god. Yeah. 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 It was a really well-reviewed show. And he, you know, what's the kind of amazes me about the music business is how so many famous musicians and producers can be a fan of somebody and they're still not thought of as having been a success. You know, that he, there was something that didn't translate to the masses, you know, that Mm -hmm. to accept him. I'm not quite sure what's the synergy there, how that, how that works but you know well it's a very small industry to begin with it always has been it's maybe a little bit bigger now because of the internet but uh you know especially back then uh you know if you if you reached a certain level you know you everybody would begin to know about you internally but you know would that translate out into uh you know international success that's 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 a totally different uh calculus Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's true. I mean, it's sad. I don't know. I'm probably not uh, giving uh, anything away, but it's it's sad to think that, you know, Otis was just about at the apex of his uh, breakthrough when he passed away. Yeah. Yeah, that that's a big shock. Uh, you know, it's a big story for us in episode thirteen. Um, you know, we we totally believe that. Uh, you know, had Otis uh, lived, uh, he, he would have been one of the biggest stars of the nineteen sixties. There's no two ways about it. Yep, and he he, he is pretty much still. I mean, yeah, I mean, with what was left, right? But I mean, you know, Dock of the Bay was you know going to set him off regardless. And you know, a lot of people think and you know go well. You know, it's posthumous and. Of course, you know, he passed away, but uh, the world didn't really work that way uh, back then. It, you know, it wasn't uh, 24-7 news where everybody knew that, uh, you know, this emerging star, Otis Redding, uh, had passed away. So, you know, Dock of the Bay really, you know, builds on its own uh, and and becomes, you know, a number one single, no, the first number one single uh, ever to, you know, be, be reached uh, as a posthumous recording. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, well, we don't want to jump too far ahead, but um, yeah, let's let's 
circle back and talk about the next song that I'd, I'd like to introduce, which is Try a Little Tenderness. Oh, that little song? Yeah. Oh. And you know what's great about this song That's is... such a nice, sweet and he, song. It's, yeah, it starts out so loving and, <laughs> and uh, you know, a torchy ballad. And even in the studio when they were recording it, Al Jackson kind of surprised them by starting to tap out a double time lick on the side of the snare drum and it just started building from there to a wild and frenzied ending and really that was because of Al Jackson it just goes to show you know when people are in the studio together and they're live people and they're feeding off of each other you know what can happen to a piece of music when when people are so you know talented as well And not just on the original recording, but when he played that song in concert, they would do the same thing. So um, I I think we have a a rendition of that song that's uh, a live version, right? Oh, there's only one rendition I'm ever going to play, and that is the Monterey Pop rendition where he just builds. It's a little bit faster than uh, the original recording, but it's just following just Otis going wild. And and I'm going to play the end of that song so everybody kind understands where this thing goes so hey here's try a little tenderness but it's all so easy all you got to do is try So yeah, Monterey Pop, that was his uh, big, big big breakthrough. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you know, when when, uh, a lot of the bands that were approached about Monterey Pop, they originally, and and Otis and um, Phil Walden too, were suspicious, like, What's what's this all about? You know, mm-hmm. people just trying to make money off of us. But you know, Bill Graham got involved, and that won over Phil and and Otis. But then they had to get Booker T. Yeah, and he's the, peripherally involved. It's yeah, really, you know, um, uh, what do you have? Um, John Phillips w- was a lot to do with uh, getting it going, and Lou Adler, uh, obviously. Uh, so it was really an L.A. thing that they brought up here. But yeah. Bill Graham was was involved peripherally. Oh, I see. Not real hands-on. Yeah. Yeah. But he was somebody they trusted at that oh, yeah. point. Mm-hmm. So if he, you know, they figured, well, if Bill Graham thinks it's a good thing to do, then we'll do it. Otis got the closing spot for Saturday night. Um, and, and After uh, the airplane. Yeah. Huh? After the airplane. After the Jefferson airplane. Yeah. Right. People, even the other stars that were appearing on the show were... I mean, you know, Janis Joplin was there um, for the festival and she had a she had a big crush on Otis or I don't know if it was a romantic crush or just a performer, you know, an art one artist crushing on the other. But or maybe apparently both. he was a big influence on her and she uh-huh. saw him and just said, Otis is God. <laughs> she just followed him around yep, yep. and wanted, you know, tips on, you know, emotional singing and stuff like that. Mm. You know, Phil Walden started getting kind of cold feet before the show because yeah. he knew yeah, this was that. a really, mm-hmm. really big deal. I mean, this was a really big stage on which to not make it. <laughs> yeah. 
And um, you know the a lot of these. Well, uh, e- even uh, even Jerry Wexler was uh, concerned about this. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. During the show, uh, you know, the story goes that uh, Walden came out to check with Wexler, and Wexler was, uh, I, I I think this is a mistake. I think I think uh, this, this is going to be bad. And Walden goes back to talk to Otis and kind of express uh, Wexler's concerns. And Otis goes, "No, man, it's all good. This is the love crowd." And sure <laughs> enough, that's what he says when he comes out. And that and the crowd, you know, even after the airplane with its psychedelia, you know, rock music and, uh, you know, maybe a few stoned out kids in there. Boy, the second he comes out, they respond. (laughs) Yeah, they definitely do. Even though the MGs came out. You know, they, in contrast to all the hippie kind of stuff that had been oh, going the suits on, and all that, yeah, yeah, they yeah had the mohair their, suits, yeah. The, yeah, the yeah. author says they had, they looked like they had gotten lost on the way to play a, a senior prom <laughs> at the country club, right, you know, because right. they were all, you know, yeah, in their snazzy the little suits yeah, and everything, and all that, yeah, yeah. But yeah. yeah, you're right. He really, really grabbed uh, the audience's attention right oh, from away. The first moment, right? The first song he sang was "Shake," yep. and he. He just like, in a way that I think the other bands didn't, you know, he really tried to connect with the audience and get them invested in him right from the start and kind of grab them and shake them (laughs) a little bit. Let's play for the folks again from Monterey Pop. This is Otis opening his set with Shake. It's been a real groovy day and a great evening. And here, let's bring on with a big hand, Mr. Otis Redding. got me shaken for sure right? <laughs> yeah now we kind of transpose that a little bit we started with try a little tenderness which was the closer there and uh and then opened here with shake and ended with shake i should say but yeah that's yeah i mean just it shows a little bit i mean to me he was the the, the breakout star at monterey perhaps bigger than anybody else and you're talking about people like the who and Jimi hendrix yeah on this right. this bill okay and otis redding really is the guy that just steals the show yeah i think he turned light bulbs on over many people's heads. You know, that's oh, when, yeah. that's the year, you know, the summer of love yep, and 1967. all people, you know, converging on California and, you know, San Francisco. And Otis was part of that, you know, just by being there in that space and time and in now, 1967. he really did cross over, you know, as a performer, certainly in concert. And while, you know, as we know here, record-wise, uh, it, it was coming up and, you know, unfortunately, posthumously. But I don't want to talk about that. I, I want to leave Otis on a high here with you. And uh, so let's just talk about the book. What? How do you think the book was? I mean, you know, do you want to recommend it? I uh, yeah, I do. I mean, you know, there's a, another one has of come out. Of course, we never read a book that we don't recommend, but I always got to ask just in case. <laughs> yeah, I definitely, I definitely got into it. I think the best part about it was, you know, the quotes um, from, 
you know, his childhood friends, uh, Johnny Jenkins, um, you know, all the uh, Booker T and Duck Dunn and Steve Cropper. Um, unfortunately, Al Jackson um, had Junior. already passed mm. away by the time, I think, by the time this book had been written. He wasn't able to talk to Otis's wife, Zelma, or I think Phil Walden because they were involved in some other project at the time. And I think it was a documentary or something, you know, something that kept them from, you know, contractually from Mm. uh, engaging in in these interviews. But, you know, it just made him come to life. And you can hear, you know, many different sides of how people felt and thought about Otis and what he was like as a man and what he was like as a musician. I would have liked, like I said, more about his personal life, you know, him as a as a husband and father. But, um, you know, you can, you know, like I said, another book has been written since since this one came out. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, if you're a real Otis Redding fan, of course, you're going to want to read everything about him. And I definitely enjoyed reading this book. It was a a quick read and it was quite interesting. You know, a lot of insights and facts I didn't know. Oh, well, that's great. Yeah. Well, again, you know, I'm glad that we can put these shows together to kind of play off each other. You know, we uh, we 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 gave a a great in-depth explanation of uh, Southern Soul music, Stax Records, Otis Redding, and obviously, you know, the struggle for civil rights and what that meant after uh, 64, 65, and how, um, you know, the world begins to change a little with uh, episode 13. And, you know, now we've gone deeper with uh, with Otis Redding, you know, or definitely our superstar of episode 13. So, all right, I'm going to leave with one last thing. I know we didn't have much time to talk about it, his, uh, his duets with uh, Carla Thomas, but uh, I loved their version of Knock on Wood. So I'm going to leave everybody with that. Anything else to add, uh, Shelly, a rock and roll librarian? <laughs> no, you know, just keep up the rocking and keep up the reading. There you go. All right, folks, have a good night, have a good day, and go play some Otis. Knock on wood. of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. The Rock and Roll Librarian. Produced and hosted by Christian Swain. Co-host... 
Shelley Sorensen. All sound design and incidental music by Jerry Danielson. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information.